All right, while everybody's getting their seats, just a reminder that we need to be keeping ourselves in continuous prayer for what's going on in Afghanistan and praying for all the soldiers, all of our military, all the missionaries, all of the various support people that are over there, all of the Americans that are there that are stranded or ignored or whatever. I don't know. It is just sickening to watch the news and what a failure this whole endeavor is in uh, getting out of there and... We just need to be in prayer for all of these different situations. There are reports that I have read from different uh, organizations that various uh, churches in Afghanistan have been completely martyred in the last week. And uh, on Sunday, there were several churches that were just, you know, uh, the Taliban just came in and and, uh, shooting and killed everybody. And so this is um, just a horrible situation. But we know that through history that persecution is often the framework for the growth of the church and the expansion of the gospel. So we just need to be in prayer for all of these people and for our troops and our leaders to be able to make wise decisions in getting all of our people out. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever." Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord and that we are in fellowship, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much we have you to come to, that you are our protector, our defender, our shield. You are our fortress. Father, we come to you, especially at this time, as we reflect on what is going on in Afghanistan, on the other side of the world, in terms of the vast numbers of Americans that are trapped or abandoned or without hope of getting to an airplane to get out of that country in the next five or six days. And we pray for them. We pray for the missionaries. We pray for the Christians in Afghanistan, the Afghan church, and the uh, persecution, the attacks, assaults that are coming to them, and the torture and imprisonment for some, 
Father, we just pray that they might be steadfast and faithful and that your grace would give them the ability to handle whatever comes their way. Father, we pray for our leaders that they would uh, wake up and that they would pay attention to what is the right thing to do. And Father, we pray that they would put the focus on what it needs to be on and not worry about these frivolous, trivial things that have been distracting our nation for too long and put it on the lives of our men and women who are over there serving their country in a military or perhaps in a civilian capacity as well as other nations. Father, we just pray that we might be motivated as a result of this to realize that this could be coming to other countries as a result of this, that this horrible takeover may bring attacks on American soil. It may bring repetitions of the attack on the uh, towers on 9-11. And, Father, we pray that we might be steadfast and looking for opportunities to encourage people not to, for us to not be distracted by the horrible things that are g- happening, but that we might have that peace that passes all understanding, that we might be able to be a witness and light to those around us because we know of your plan and purpose. Father, also as we study tonight, help us to understand the things that we're studying. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in Second Peter chapter 3, and you might want to open your Bibles to Isaiah because that's where we're going to start after I get through with a little bit of review, uh, which is important to remind ourselves of what is going on. So the question I'm really going to address tonight is this question of the day of the Lord. I've run through the various definitions that dispensational theologians, good men all who are students of the word, have how they have defined the day of the Lord. And that is the interpretive crux, really, for understanding 2 Peter 3.10. And so we need to answer this question, does the day of the Lord include the 1,000 years of the Messianic kingdom? Or does the day of the Lord restrict itself to the period of judgment in the tribulation? And that is an incredibly significant question. Now, when we look at the passage that we're studying in 2 Peter 3, the thrust of the passage, the body of this last chapter, is in verses 3 through 14. Verse 3 raises the question from the lips of the false teachers when they ask the question, where is the promise of his coming? Now that sets the tone for what this chapter is talking about is the coming of Christ, not the rapture, but the second coming. And so that's the context. And then, of course, we see the ways in which they try to Uh, scoff and mock Christians because nothing's happened in the last 2,000 years and Jesus isn't showing up. And we've looked at Peter's answer uh, that they're willfully ignorant. They're willfully deluded. They're willfully ignoring the fact that that, uh, of creation and of God's intervention in judgment in the Noahic flood. And after going through that, then we get down to First uh, Peter three, Second Peter three ten, where Peter says, "But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, 
in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Now that's all, everything that's said there is dependent upon properly interpreting the phrase, the day of the Lord. And so we started by asking the question, what does the Bible teach about the day of the Lord? And what we have seen by going through all of the passages in the Old Testament that refer to the day of the Lord is that it is, first of all, a time of darkness and not light, Amos. It's a time of divine judgment. It is a time when God directly, rather than providentially, shows up in history to bring judgment on his enemies. That's the day of the Lord. Now, in some sense, one of the ways, one of the battles or debate issues is whether or not it includes a time of blessing. And I think that's a vague way to put it because there's always two sides to a coin. And when God shows up in the day of the Lord and destroys his enemy, what a blessing that is. Okay, so the flip side of that is yes, in some way, because by doing that, he establishes his kingdom. So it's it's too broad. The, The real issue is, does it include the thousand years of the millennial kingdom or is it just focusing on the seven years of judgment in the time of the tribulation, including those events that surround the second coming, which is the destruction of the armies of the Antichrist and casting Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet into their respective uh, places of imprisonment or judgment. In the case of the Antichrist and the false prophet, they're sent straight to the lake of fire. Satan is sent to the abyss. And at that time, the kingdom is established, so there'll be a time of great rejoicing. But it doesn't, does it include more than that? Or is it just stopping with that establishment, the turning on of the light switch, so to speak? So just to remind you, Schofield defined the day of the Lord as beginning with the second coming and going through the millennium to the great white throne judgment. Uh, Harry Ironside, Lewis Berry Chafer, Walvard, Ryrie, Pentecost theme, Showers, and Bowman all see it as beginning after the rapture and extending all the way through the thousand years to the great white throne. Now, I mentioned last week, Tommy is in print in some of his early books, pamphlets on the on prophecy that he saw the day of the Lord is lasting a thousand and seven years. I, I don't, he doesn't hold to that anymore. And I'm, I had a good conversation with him about some of this today, just making sure I wasn't going off into some nebulous cloud. The third view is the view that the second coming or the end of the millennium excludes most of the tribulation and the millennium, and it just focuses on those horrendous judgments at the end of the tribulation and the end of the millennium. And that, you know, I put Randy and Tommy's name there because they've both, I've asked them many times over the last 10 years, what do you, what's good to read on the day of the Lord? And they've always pointed me to Dick Mayhew's article. That's what he wrote his 
his dissertation on, I think. Fourth, Arnold Fruchtenbaum says it's only the tribulation. It is not the millennium. It is not the thousand years. It's only the millennium, only the time of Daniel's 70th week. And then Lou Barbieri, who's taught at Moody for many, many years and at Dallas Seminary when I was there, it's just it's the rapture or the second coming. So how do we determine the meaning of the day of the Lord? We just have to look at every passage, which is what we've done. We've seen that it occurs in 19 passages in the Old Testament. I'm not concerned about the New Testament passages yet. Somebody, I think somebody asked me about that last week. The day of the Lord is defined by the Old Testament. The New Testament doesn't change its meaning, but it's defined by the Old Testament. So we have to go through those. I'm not looking at the New Testament passages yet. That will eventually come, but right now that's not really relevant because it doesn't change things. So we looked at the phrase in all of those Old Testament passages. And in addition, we have to deal with other phrases that people go to, such as in that day. And you'll read that. You read through Isaiah, and you read through Zechariah. You see all these passages, in that day, in that day, in that day. And you have a number of people who take the second view. That's the view of Showers and Walvard and Schaefer. That any time, just about any time you see the phrase in that day, that that day is always referring to the day of the Lord. What we'll see is that if you believe in carefully analyzing context, it really doesn't do that. It is, you know, the phrase basically in that day, in English you have the words this and that. This is a near demonstrative and that is a far demonstrative. We're going to do it this week where, and, th- and then next week is next week. It's not this week. So next tells you it's, a, it's further away. So we're going to do it this week and not that week. That's further away. So that's called a far demonstrative. Or it's just, and in the Hebrew, it is the pronoun for he, which is who. Yeah. So that's how we used to memorize it. They're not screwed up on their gender, but in Hebrew, who is he, and he is she. So that's how you remember those those pronouns. So it's who, but it has a definite article in front of it, so it's hahu. And it refers, it's basically translated as that, but you have to look at the context because when it says in that day, what is it, what's happening? It's talking about what just happened in the previous context. So we have to look at that. What's it talking about? Is it talking about the day of the Lord? And what I've discovered is a number of these passages where it says in that day, there's no reference to the day of the Lord within three books. And in Isaiah, it shows up towards the end of Isaiah. The last time the day of the Lord was used was back in chapter 13. Uh, yeah, 13. Yeah. That time it shows up, you have in that day is in chapter 24. Well, it doesn't jump 11 chapters to find the reference to in that day. So you have to be a lot more careful than that. And unfortunately, in the course of studies, in the course of theology, you have people who make certain statements and it sounds right and it looks good and you can read the text and it seems to make sense, but it violates the law of spandex. 
Remember the law of spandex. Just because you can wear spandex doesn't mean you should wear spandex. And that relates to hermeneutics, and just because it seems to make sense doesn't mean that's the interpretation of the passage. So we have to be careful with that. So tonight we're really going to be looking at some of these other verses that are used that day, the day, the great day of the Lord, uh, and see what... uh, Now, the great day of the Lord, I think, does refer to the day of the Lord, but uh, that day is where we're really focusing. So we have the phrase, the day of the Lord, it refers to God's special interventions into the course of world events to judge his enemies. He shows up, not providentially to judge his enemies, but, but God is pictured as riding on the clouds, riding the chariots. He is coming direct. There's a direct intervention of God to either dis- bring judgment on Israel or to destroy Israel's enemies. Ultimately, all of the historic days of the Lord are types of the ultimate day of the Lord. Okay, so we're just basically, just I just have to do that really grunge work of looking at in detail every passage and every context. So we took them in order. First, we looked at Obadiah, and then Joel, and then Amos, and then last week we looked at Isaiah and Zephaniah and Ezekiel and Zechariah, because there were just a couple of verses there. We're not really exegeting everything around it, but we're just looking at how it's used. So what we saw is that when the day of the Lord is used, when that whole phrase is used, the day of the Lord or the great and awesome day of the Lord or all of that, it always refer, it can refer to a historic past judgment. The great and awesome day of the Lord does not. That refers to what happens in the tribulation. It can refer to a historic past judgment, as we saw in Obadiah, when God is bringing a judgment against Israel's enemies. It always appears to speak of judgment and not blessing per se, not a period of time in terms of blessing. But anytime God judges your enemies, it's a blessing. So, but what I'm talking about is a time of, it's, it's stated in Amos, it's a time of darkness and not light. And so all past days of the Lord foreshadow the future end time day of the Lord. And the fourth observation was the future day of the Lord will be preceded by several events, which we'll get into. That gets us more into New Testament passages. So 2 Peter 3.10, just to get away from the day of the Lord for just a minute, just to point out a couple of things. 2 Peter 3.10, the section is 3.10 to 14. So I'm going to look at the bookends. 10 and then 14. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Now, where do we have that phrase? We have the day of the Lord connected to a thief in the night in 2 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. That's talking about the tribulation. We have those terms connected in Matthew 24 in the Upper Room Discourse, I mean in the um, Olivet Discourse, related to the second coming. We don't have it related to the end of the millennium. But the bugaboo for a lot of people is how some of the language is translated, and 2 Peter 3.13 says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, 
look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The word translated new here is the word kainos. There are two words that are used in Greek for the word new. And there's the word kainos, and there is the word neos. And the word kainos has that idea of something uh, new. It's recently come into existence and something that was not previously present. So it's something recent. And it has to do with something, therefore, that is um, quantitative. That's the language that's used. I'll show you a couple of quotes in a minute. Revelation 21.1 is the only other passage in the New Testament that uses this language. Revelation 21.1, John says, this is following the great white throne judgment at the end of Revelation 20. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. The word for new is the same word that's used in Second uh, Peter 3. Kainos, new in, in time, it's quantita- uh, yeah, quantitative. Then in Revelation, I mean, then in 2 Corinthians 5.17, we have the phrase, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new cre- creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. It's still the same word for new. Now, pause a minute. It's very confu- it's confusing language to me. Some of this grammatical stuff, I don't know why they chose these terms, but this is the terms that are used in the technical literature. There are two positions. One position is that this passage describes a quantitative, quantitatively new creation. That means that the present heavens and earth are completely annihilated and God creates a new heavens and earth uh, ex nihilo, out of nothing. That's the position that all of us have heard and that's the position that I have always taught. That would require the use of naos, but this isn't naos, it is kainos, like the kaine diatheke, that's the Greek for the New Testament, new in time as opposed to the, I mean, uh, uh, new, qualitatively new. So we have a book called The Synonyms of the New Testament by a 19th century Greek, squ- Greek scholar named Richard Shinovich Trench. And he says regarding naos, it's new in time, quantitative, and that's the equivalent of the what is called the annihilation recreation view. So he says this contemplates the new under the aspects of time is that which has recently come into existence, and this is naos. Thus the young are the hoi neoi, or the hoi neoteroi, who are the young men in First John, the generation which has recently sprung up, so too with the younger race of gods are called uh, the neoi theoi, the new gods. 
Now, in contrast, he says about kainos that this is new in quality. It's a qualitative difference, and this is the word that is used to describe the other interpretation, which is, um, oh, I, I didn't delete that. It should be, uh, I got distracted or called. It's new in, uh, the naos is quantitative, and this is new in quality. Qualitative is not the annihilation is creation, ex nihilo view. Qualitative is that God renews or regenerates the earth. And that's what fits in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Because when we're a new creature in Christ, we didn't die and, and get a new body and a new everything. We are renewed. And we are a new creature in Christ. And we don't get our new body without the sin nature until the rapture, or, or when we are glorified when we die. So based on this analysis, just on those words, it seems that the renewal view fits the use of kine, uh, that if it was going to be the qualitative view, the uh, annihilation view, that it would be using the word naos. But there are many who know all of that, and they go back to the fact that the day of the Lord isn't just judgment, it is, it involves the millennium as well. And so Reynolds Showers, who's got his... Reynolds is now with the Lord, so he knows the answer. Uh, he went to be with the Lord a few years ago after a bout with Alzheimer's. He was the um, sort of the theologian on staff for many, many years. I think he got his doctorate back in the early 60s, but he, uh, he was on staff with uh, Friends of Israel for many, many years and was really solid. I've got a number of books that he wrote that are just exceptional. He's a he's a guy I typically would say, oh, okay, I go to him because he's going to do it right. But the problem is we get into some of these areas in eschatology and all of the guys we go to to get it right are on different sides of the issue. So what do we do? Well, we have to just knuckle down and go through and figure out where the battlegrounds are. So he says, some advocate the view that the day of the Lord involves only the wrath of God being poured out in judgment, and that therefore the millennium is unrelated to the concept of the day of the Lord. There are two problems with this view, however. First, advocates of this view are inconsistent. They are willing to accept the idea that the expression that day refers to the day of the Lord when the expression appears in a context of divine wrath poured out as judgment, but they reject the idea that the expression that day refers to the day of the Lord when that expression appears in a context of millennial blessing. Well, that sounds good, doesn't it? Except that that day is a demonstrative pronoun that is just talking, basically means at that time, and so you have to look at the context to see what time it is that's being referred to. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says, it's better to view the day of Jehovah as starting with the seven-year covenant. That's the beginning of Daniel's 70th week, the beginning of the tribulation. Others wish to extend the period of the day of Jehovah to include the millennium and the aftermath. But a study of the term in every passage will show that it is never used in any context except that of the tribulation. 
while other expressions such as that day or in that day are used for both the tribulation and the millennium, the term the day of Jehovah, the day of the Lord, is never used for anything outside of the great tribulation. So when you have two really good scholars and they're dispensational and free grace and they're just on most things just as straight as they can be and they're on opposite sides of the issue, there's only one thing to do and that's go look at, look at their evidence. So what I did was I looked at all the passages that, wait a minute, I've lost something here. Let me go find where I put, oh, I know what I'm doing now. Okay, we're going to shift over because these passages are too long. So what I did was I put a panel up there from my Logos. and I Can you read it, Bryce? Can you read it? Okay. Uh, I can bump it up more if you need it, but I just thought I would go through these passages. You need it a little more, Pam? I can bump it up just a little more, and that's fine. Well, not too much more, I guess. Okay, here we go. So here we have one of these first references to in that day. And Showers is saying that that has to refer in context to the day of the Lord. And in some sense, that's true, but we have to be careful with this. And we actually have to go back to this is for one. Guess where the phrase, the day of the Lord, occurs? In 2.12. Now, that's not like right around the corner, is it? But I want to show you a couple of things. because Actually, um, Showers doesn't make an issue of this, but uh, all of this, but it's there. You go back to 2.12... And there's the statement of judgment that's coming that goes back to the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1. And it talks about that when the Lord comes, what's going to happen in Israel? There's going to be the mountain of the Lord's house. There's going to be a topographical change. And there's going to be this mountain that raises up. And they're going to build a new temple there. And all the people will come and say, go, let's worship on the mountain of the Lord. And so that context is clearly talking about the period of the millennial kingdom. They'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And then there's the exhortation in verse 5, O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have forsaken your people the house of Jacob, because they are filled with eastern ways. So for you is directed toward God. So now we're, we hear the rumble of the bass notes as things are going to get nasty here. And there's going to be a judgment on the land that is full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands. People bow down. So now it is a time of judgment, a time of the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. And the Lord alone shall be exalted at that time. Makes perfect sense. What time is this? It said in the next verse, For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty. So that sets the context. 
And it's still talking about that same context of judgment in verse 17, when again we have the phrase, the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. But it's still talking about at that time. That time what's the time? The time of this judgment at, at the day of the Lord. The idols he shall utterly abolish. They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord. And in that day, this time of terror, a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, and they'll go uh, into the clefts of the rocks and the crags of the rugged rocks from the terror of the Lord. Uh, So all of this just continues to talk about this judgment as a time of terror. And then it's going to be that the the people are oppressed, verse 5, and it gives this illustration in verse 6. When a man takes hold of his brother in the house of his father and says, you have clothing, you be our ruler, let these ruins be under your power. Everything's gone to chaos and terror and the civilization is coming apart at the seams and the wheels are off. And so this guy, this is the illustration, this guy grabs his brother and says, oh, you've got it, you, you had it together, you be our ruler. And then we have the phrase, in that day. Is that talking about in that day of the Lord? No, it's talking about at the time that the one brother tells the other brother, you be our ruler. And what, what that happens is the brother will protest saying, I can't cure your ills for in my house there's no food or clothing. Don't make me a ruler of the people. So in that day is not a technical term, obviously, for the day of the Lord. It's just a phrase for at that time, and it has to go to its nearest reference point, which was this situation just before that. Now, the rest of this passage goes on and continues to talk about the judgments that are coming. And when it comes to the end, uh, a little bit further on, verse 18, in that day, the Lord will take away the finery. So it's talking about his judgment. He's take, And all the uh, the women especially who have had all their focus on the wrong thing and not on the Lord, all living up to all the pagan ideals and everything else. The Lord's going to take all that away. There's going to be judgment on these unbelievers and everything they valued is taken out of the way. So it is talking about the judgment. And in that day, seven women shall take hold of one man. They don't have anybody who's the breadwinner. Seven women are going to grab one guy and say, okay, you take care of us. We will eat our own food and wear our own apparel, but let us be called by your name and take away our repro- reproach. And then it says, in that day, at, in other words, at that time, this is when the Messiah shows up, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. So we gave the negative picture in verses, or in chapters 2 and 3, and now the positive side, once the judgment comes, the Messiah in his glory is made uh, made clear. The Messiah in his glory uh, uh, is appearing, and uh, we see that he it's uh, beautiful, glorious. He's excellent and appealing for the remnant. How do I know it's the remnant? Look at the end of verse 2. For those of Israel who have escaped. These are the believers, the remnant. So he shows up. It's a time of judgment for the unsaved, and it's a time of glory for those who are saved who've called on the name of the Lord. And they've escaped all of this horror brought on by God's judgment and the Antichrist. 
And, it, and then verse 3 goes on to say, It shall come to pass that the one who's left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. And it talks about all the positive things after that. But that's not part of the day of the Lord. Okay, then we're going to go to the next passage. And this would be Isaiah 11, 10 and 11. Uh, 10 says, in, in that day, there shall be, sorry for all... I can't get rid of all of my markups because this is how I study, and I just mark everything up in my Lagos, and if I delete it, then I won't know what my notes were or markups, so just try to read it anyway. He says, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people, uh, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. Now that's talking about the millennium. But what's the reference to in that day? This is Isaiah 11. The last time we had a mention of the phrase the day of the Lord was in Isaiah 2.12. This isn't referring all the way back to Isaiah 2.12. It is just a statement continuing what has been talked about at the beginning. So you look at the beginning of this of this chapter and it talks about the Messiah is going to come. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. This is a great messianic promise. That's why I have it all colored in purple. Uh, From the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. So it's talking about the qualities of the Messiah. And then in verse 4, it says, he's going to rule with righteousness and uh, decide with equity And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall say the wicked. So there's judgment there, but it's it's really focusing on the characteristics of the millennium. A wolf will lie down with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion, and the fatling together. A little child will lead them, etc. And so all of this wonderful characteristics, and it just says at that in that day. No reference to the day of the Lord, just saying at that time when the Messiah is ruling in righteousness and equity and all of this has changed, at that time there shall be uh, at that time there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people, uh, for the Gentiles will seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. It shall come to pass in that day the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left. So it's all talking about what happens after the judgments are done in the day of the Lord, but in that day can't refer to the day of the Lord because it's a it's a near it's a demonstrative that doesn't go back uh, nine chapters. Now the next time it's mentioned uh, that the is in the day of the Lord is mentioned is in Isaiah 13. And I think I have one other place. In that day, you will also say, so that's going. That's all talking about the same thing as Isaiah 11. You have this whole string of phrases, in that day and in that day, and you just should translate at that time. At that time when the Messiah is ruling. It's not talking about in that day of the Lord. That would not fit. But that's how... Many of us were taught to read it. So then we skip to Isaiah 19, 18. And again, there's no reference. 
this is Isaiah 19. The last time the phrase day of the Lord is used is in describing the destruction of Babylon in Isaiah 13 and 14. So here we see in that day, Egypt will be like the women will be afraid and fear because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts. And in the land of Judah, there will be terror to Egypt. So at that time, it's it, it in that day is talking about judgment, but contextually, it never uses the phrase day of the Lord. So you can't just read it into the passage. That's, called, that's a logical fallacy called confirmation bias. You can't just take it out of context and add that. So it's a description of what will happen at that time. At that time, there'll be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. In that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land. So just basically a term that means at that time, at that time, at that time. We go to the next usage, which is in Isaiah 24. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of exalted ones and on the earth the kings of the earth. Now that's describing the judgments at the end of the tribulation. But nowhere... Since Isaiah 13, do you have the phrase the day of the Lord? So you can't, re- you're not justified in reading it into the phrase just because it's talking about judgment. It's just a phrase that means, it's not, what I'm saying is, it's not a technical term for the day of the Lord, which is what a lot of people came up with. Because there's too many places where you have the phrase in that day where it can't be a technical term for the day of the Lord. It's just talking about at that time. Then we go to, wait a minute, I clicked the wrong thing. We go to the next usage, which is in Hosea 2. And Hosea 2 says, and it shall be in that day, says the Lord. Oh, that must be the day of the Lord because it's in that day. Well, the term the day of the Lord is not used in Hosea at all. So why would you think that it refers to the day of the Lord? It just is saying at that time. What time? Well, the time that's talked about in the previous verses. So that's the only time it's used in Hosea. And then we have Joel 3.16. And in Joel 3.16, we read, The Lord also will roar from Zion, Utter his voice from Jerusalem, the heavens and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people. So it's describing judgment again, just like it did at the end of chapter 2. And the strength of the children of Israel, so you shall know that I am the Lord your God, uh, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain, then Jerusalem shall be holy, and no alien shall ever pass through her again. And it will come to pass in that time. In what time? Not in the day of the Lord, which is used, I didn't go back far enough, in verse 14. The day of the Lord is this valley of decision that happens, this judgment that's in, uh, that we have all here in, down through uh, 16. And then in 17, it's describing the new conditions, so you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And it will come to pass at that time when Jerusalem will be holy and no alien shall ever pass through her again, that the mountains shall drip with new wine, the hills shall flow with milk. 
It's not talking about the characteristics of the whole thousand years of the millennial kingdom. It is talking about what the, the transition that goes from the end of the judgments when now there's world peace, genuine peace, and righteousness that at that time, this is what the conditions will be. Then we go to the next phrase in Amos 9. And again, we have the use of the day of the Lord earlier in Amos where he says it's a time of darkness and not light. And now at the end, after the this judgment has taken place when God says in verse 9, for uh, uh, I will destroy it from the face, uh, verse 8, behold the eyes of the Lord are on sinful kingdom and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Uh, yes, I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob for surely I will command and I will sift the house of Israel among all the nations. So that's all talking about judgment. And then he says on that day, well, the Lord returns in judgment. He destroys the armies of the Antichrist. He destroys, sends Satan to the abyss. And what does he do? He establishes his throne. But that's the flip side, the positive side of the judgments, the results of the judgment. But it's not describing what happens over the next thousand years. It's just establishing, it's just talking about the beginning of the, of the kingdom. So on that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David. That's the house of David. Who's the ultimate one in the house of David? That's the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. The whole house of David has been in shambles ever since the destruction of the southern kingdom in 586. And God says, I'll repair its damages. I'll raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old and that they may possess. And then it goes on to say he'll rebring back his people and the return of Israel. That's what happens after the judgments. Okay, so we go from that verse to Zechariah chapter 2. Again, we have phrases. No use of the phrase day of the Lord and but it's talking about that same time period, but you can't make it a definite technical term. It says in that day, and that just goes back to what he says here about fleeing from the land of the north. For I have spread you abroad like the four winds of heaven. Up Zion, escape you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon, for thus says the Lord of hosts, he, he sent me after glory to the nations. Now, that's a great Trinitarian passage. Who's talking? Thus says the Lord of hosts. That would be the Lord Jesus Christ. He sent me. Who is he? Who sends the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of hosts? God the Father. He sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you to, touches the apple of his eye, the Father's eye. For surely I will shake my hand against them, and they shall become spoiled for their servants. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. So you have this complicated conversation back and forth with the Lord and the Lord of hosts. 
And then it says, many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people. So it's just another term for at that time. Then we go down and we go to the next. There's two more passages in Zechariah. Zechariah 3, 8, again, it is talking about um, the time of the Lord. Verse 10, in that day, says the Lord, everyone will invite his neighbor. So it's talking about at that time. It's not talking about the day of the Lord. Then we get to the fun passage, which is Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14 begins, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. Now that means that what Israel has will be divided by the armies of the Antichrist. They're coming in to destroy Israel. And God says, For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished, half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. This is what happens in the day of the Lord. It's not a good time. It's a bad time, a time of darkness and not light. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, at that time, when he goes to fight against the nations, at that time, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Now, remember when I've gone through the eight stages of the campaign of Armageddon where you have the Antichrist bringing all of his logistics and all of his arms and everything into the uh, port of Haifa, which is the only deep water port on the uh, eastern end of the Mediterranean. And they offload all of their equipment into the valley of uh, Megiddo. And that Armageddon is Har Megiddo, the mountain of Megiddo, which is where the tell of Megiddo is. Those of you who've been to Israel with me have been there. And that's the staging area. It's not where the battle takes place because this is a multifaceted battle. There's a battle where Babylon is going to be destroyed. There's another uh, battle against Jerusalem when uh, Jews are, who have not escaped are going to be trapped and a third of them are going to be killed and half or another third is going to be left there, I think, and a third has already escaped and gone into the wilderness of Petra in Basra. And the Lord Jesus Christ comes to Basra first, destroys the armies of the Antichrist there, then leads uh, the tribes of Israel with the tribe of Judah out front, leads them back up through the southern a part of Israel and up through Judah to, back to Jerusalem, and then he comes to the Mount of Olives, and then that's what, what this is talking about. That in that day, that at th- that time, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half the mountain moves to the north, half to the south, and you, that is the remnant in Jerusalem, flees through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Nobody knows where that is, somewhere down by the Dead Sea. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah. And then it says, it shall come to pass in that day. This is when the, this is that 24-hour period when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to destroy the armies of the Antichrist and bring everything to an end. It shall be... Uh, it shall be one day 
which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen. It will be light, and in that day it shall be living water. So it's dark until the defeat, then it will be light. And in that day there will be living waters that flow from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea, half to the western sea. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. Then the millennium begins. Actually, it doesn't begin for a number of days after I think it's 70 days because there's a cleanup and phasing and transition and all these other things that happen before the millennium actually actually begins. But I thought that was interesting that the Lord is one. His name is one. You know, we think of the Lord as a trinity, but he's also one. And the word that's used for one here is the same word that we use and that we see in Deuteronomy 6.4, what the Jews always recite, the Shema, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But what I've always found interesting is the most recent Jewish publication society translation of the Tanakh, the Hebrew Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, translates it, the Lord, uh, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. Because echad doesn't necessarily mean a singularity. There's a multiplicity. There's always, we studied this on Tuesday night with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. There's, up until the time of Christ, there was always a sense in, in Jewish writings that God was a plurality. And, and so we have, as I've talked about, and it's always so hard for everybody to get a grasp on the philosophical concepts when I talk about the, the philosophical problem of the one and the many or univer, uni, unity and diversity. But I ran across a great illustration yesterday. God is the only person that can sing, in a th- or he's the only entity that can sing in three-part harmony. You have unity and diversity. God is one, but he sings in three-part harmony. So that, that's what that illustration is all about. So anyway, so we've gone through all of these passages, and I, I don't think there's another one. I think that's the last one that deals with the praise uh, of in that day. Maybe there was one other I might have missed. No, I think that's that. We got it. So anyway, that's what takes us through this whole, uh, this whole important topic. And so what happens is we come to the end and we have to draw some conclusions. And the conclusion is that there's no clear evidence that the phrase in that day is a technical term for the thousand years of the millennial kingdom. It refers to that time when Christ returns, destroys the enemies of God, and establishes his kingdom. But it doesn't go beyond that. And so that is important because when we get into looking at this passage in Second Peter 3, it starts off by saying, in the day of the Lord. And if that is, at, it, it, it's talking about the thousand-year reign of Christ, and this is what a number of people go to, then that's what they'll conclude is that, well, this must, it sounds so much as if the earth is completely destroyed and annihilated. But what we're going to see next time, I'm going to come back and I just want to create 
a series of slides that show the contrast between the two positions because I think that that helps. Because when you look at the language that is in Second uh, Peter 3.10, the, the day of the Lord connected to the thief in the night, those are, that's used in passages that are talking about the second coming. And when it talks about heavens passing away with a great noise, there are passages within the period of the tribulation that sound very similar to that. And uh, the elements will melt. Well, there's language in, it's either Ezekiel or Jeremiah. I didn't have time to go back and look the verse up, but I'll find others. But I was, when I was walking, when I walked, I listened to the read, somebody read the Bible. And I was going through Jeremiah and Ezekiel both this last week, and there's a phrase describing the destruction of Jerusalem as melting at, at, in 586. So melting doesn't mean the absolute annihilation of the planet. It sounds that way in the context of Second Peter 3, and the word that is, that is translated pass away, think it's pass away, and then uh, and, you know, dissolved, which is used twice in 11 and in 12, is the word luo in the Greek, which every Greek student knows because that's the, parad- the word we use for the paradigm to learn all of our conjugations and everything. And it simply means to let something loose. And that can be a positive thing that somebody's in jail and you let them loose, or it can be a negative thing. But it doesn't mean annihilation. So what I'm bottom line is uh, this view is one that I always thought was, oh, just a couple of people on the fringe take that view. And yet I have discovered that there's really a lot of other well-respected scholars within dispensationalism who've taken this view, and it has a lot of support. But it's the other view that seemed to have the heavyweights from Dallas Seminary that backed it. But there are others that take that take this view. So um, we'll come back and look at the strengths and weaknesses next time and and wrap up this section uh, down through 13. And then we'll be coming close to the very end of our study of 2 Peter. So in a few weeks, we'll end 2 Peter, and then we'll begin a study of Philippians, which I have not taught in 30 years. But before that, I taught it three or four times. So it's not like it's new, new ground for me, but I will find new things there. So that's the, that's the plan. Okay, Father, we thank you for this time that we can study these things. And sometimes it's rugged going through all these technical studies and usage and working our way through things. But that's what we have to do sometimes just to find out uh, whether state, certain statements are true or not. And so we have to evaluate the evidence. And, Father, we thank you that your word is so clear. We thank you for the perspicacity of your word and the Holy Spirit who guides and directs us and helps us to understand things that uh, seem quite complicated at times. And it takes a lot of years of study to reach conclusions. But, Father, we thank you for this because the bottom line here is that you will be true to your promise and uh, the mockers who say, well, where's the promise of his coming uh, will be have their mouths shut when that time comes that you return. And we look forward to that. 
And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.